This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 145, The Siege of Leningrad, Part 2. Last time, Stalin had had enough of Voroshilov's mistakes, so sent General Zhukov, the hero of the Battle of Golenko, or Nomaham, to the Japanese, to oversee the defense of Leningrad. The communist leader wasn't expecting much, given the losses already suffered at the hands of the Germans, but anything was worth trying. If the northeastern front was to fall, the Germans would be that much closer to Moscow, the hub of raising, organizing, equipping, and training the hundreds of thousands, eventually millions, of conscripts being called up. And though Zhukov might fail, he would try his best to bleed the Germans before he evacuated, and Stalin would give the general all the help he could and the bleeding of the German forces was about to commence. But then it didn't. Zhukov was moving forces around, reinforcing the area immediately south of the city, and preparing to send the 8th Army, itself to the southwest of the city, into a perceived gap behind the German forces, as they closed in on Uritsk, just southwest of the city along the coast. And as we have seen on September 16th, the 41st Motorized and the 38th Army Corps' 58th Infantry and 1st Panzer Divisions, strengthened by the 254th Infantry Division, attacked the Soviet 8th Army as it was still gathering near Krasno Selo, just south of Uritsk, which was the next target. And sure enough, during that very night, Uritsk, along with three other nearby towns, fell. The Germans were now along the Gulf of Finland, and the remaining battered 8th Army was cut off from help, nor able to help the besieged city. But proving himself effective, Major General Fudianinsky, now in control of the shaken 42nd Army, had stiffened their backbone and the defensive line just before the Germans' new position. Yet the aggressors were sure this Russian line like so many others before it, would collapse. 
But Zhukov was the conductor of this barely organized orchestra now. Ordering Savaldin, the 8th Army's new commander, to finish organizing what was left of his command, the 8th Army attacked east towards Krasno-Selo on September 19th, just three days after being shattered by the Germans. The 8th came on with four rifle divisions. The German 38th Army Corps now found itself being pushed back, yet managed to strike back two days later, on September 20th. This latest German attack halted the now-tired Russians and sent them back to their starting point, to the southwest of Leningrad and along the coast. Neither side could know this, but this current battle line would remain, roughly, for the rest of the war. Meanwhile, Lieb had also launched attacks at Krasnovardisk and the Pushkin areas. If he could completely control the Krasnovardisk area, this would give him free access to Pushkin, to the north, just south of Leningrad's southern boundary. Krasnovardisk was some 30 miles or 48 kilometers south of Pushkin. His idea was to leapfrog his forces from Krasnovardisk to Pushkin to the underbelly of the main city. And Lieb knew he had to act fast. His deadline for giving over much of his motorized divisions was approaching. But he believed his idea of hitting the enemy south of the city from the west and the east would be, in short order, their undoing. So, on September 12th, the 41st Motorized Corps' 6th Panzer Division and the 50th Army Corps' SS Police and the 169th Infantry Division came at Krasnovardisk and Pushkin from the west, as the 28th Army Corps' 96th and 121st Infantry Divisions came at the Russians from the east. Krasnovardisk fell the next day, September 13th. Yet the Soviets hung in there, being whipped, figuratively speaking, by Zhukov, and tied up the German forces there, for three days. It was then the SS Police Division found General Ivanov, the 42nd Army's former commander, and his political officer, hidden away. As for Pushkin, to the north and closer to Leningrad, it held out until September 17th. This defeat forced the Soviet line to move even closer to Leningrad's southern border at Polkovo. But Lieb like Zhukov, was not giving up, certainly because of his time limit. He had the 1st Panzer Division surge forward once again, and the German armor this time managed to take Pulkovo, but not the area's heights. The Soviets had fought this battle with tanks that had literally left the factory floor of the Kolpino tank factory, and this caused the Germans to come up short on the southern slopes of the Polkovo Heights. The fighting here and to the northwest, the area became known as the Orienbaum Pocket, went on until September 30th, the leaders of each side exhorting their men to try again and again. Yet it would be Lieb who would halt first, the attempted advances as his deadline was about to approach. 
the 41st Motorized Corps would soon be leaving him. And though this phase of the battle was over, Lieb had his Luftwaffe units bomb the Baltic fleet and the port of Kroestadt, the largest island on the eastern half of the Gulf of Finland. From September 21st to the 23rd, the Germans' air power negated the Russian ships of the area. Pressure comes in many forms. Thus, the fighting stopped, momentarily. Lieb had shaken the Russian line, but broke nothing. Time would show both sides that Lieb had just lost his best chance to take the city from the south. But this was not over. Now, it was Zhukov's turn. Using the 54th Army and the Neva Operational Group, or NOG, Zhukov had these units move west and hit Siniavino and Emga, just below the southwest corner of Lake Ladoga, the idea being to shatter at least a part of the blockade around the city. The 54th moved out on September 10th, but only advanced some eight kilometers, or five miles, in just over two weeks. Zhukov roared at the 54th's leader to try harder, but nothing came of it. Schmidt's 39th Motorized Corps then pushed the 54th back to their starting point. And that was it for Zhukov. The 54th's commander was removed and replaced by his other protege, Major General Kozin. During this failed offensive, the NOG moved out with the 115th Rifle Division and the 4th Naval Infantry Brigade on September 20th, again heading west and managed to reach and set up a small bridgehead on the left-hand side of the Neva River. But nothing came of it. Zhukov's assault was no more successful than Lieb's. Yet the Russian attempt did delay the 39th Motorized Corps' transfer to Army Group Center. With the front stabilized, for now, the Battle of Leningrad was quickly shaping up into a siege a war of attrition, something Berlin knew it could not win. And even though Army Group North had lost some 80,000 men and felt those losses keenly, the Soviets had lost, by now, so many more, but did not feel their absence as much. Between July 10th and August 23rd, the Northern Front had lost just over 55,000 men from its committed 153,000 to the area. But the Leningrad front, from August 23rd to September 30th alone, had lost some 116,000 men from its 300,000 contingent. And these numbers do not take into account the 144,000 casualties suffered by other parts of the Northwestern Front. Truly, the miracle of the Neva saw the Soviets challenged, but defiantly standing at the end of this crucial phase. Yet both sides continued making plans to dominate the other. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, 
I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But Leap's plans would have fewer men and tanks to factor in. On September 15th, units of motorized and air corps started vacating the area to head southeast to participate in Operation Typhoon, the march on Moscow. Remaining behind were Schmidt's 39th Motorized Corps, consisting of the 12th Panzer and the 18th and 20th Motorized Divisions. Soon after, it would be determined to leave the 8th Panzer Division behind as well, to deal with Zhukov's continuous counterattacks. For Lieb, having the Soviet 8th Army trapped to the west of the city was nice, but it wasn't helping him deal with the Soviet forces just south of the city. So, he moved the 254th Infantry Division from the Oranian Bomb area to strengthen the defense of the 39th Motorized Corps' left flank. Notice the word defense. Lieb, so denuded, felt he no longer had the punching power to either take Leningrad or to deal with the Soviet counterattacks. On September 24th, a week before the latest clashes just covered settled down, the Army Group North leader reported to the OKH that his situation has worsened considerably and he no longer could continue offensive operations, which only left him with the option of going on the defensive. But Hitler would not hear of that. He told his general, no. And this wasn't the first time Der Fuhrer had overrode one of his senior officers and ended up being right. This time would be the same. The leader of the Nazi party was sure. Lieb, not so much but a general could hope. Perhaps the city would surrender, knowing that eventual starvation was their fate. So Lieb increased the pressure on the city and the people within. Ordering the closest artillery units to bombard the city, the guns were effective with whatever they hit, but were not close enough to yet strike the heart of the city. But that was okay, as the Luftwaffe was able to drop 8,000 incendiary bombs during this time, which not only leveled buildings, but destroyed the Badievsky warehouse, which held most of the city's food supplies. Addendum. The people of Leningrad were, unsurprisingly, afraid. After all, here was the German Wehrmacht, which had one victory after another under its belt, just outside their city the revengeful Finns to the north. But fear can be a good thing, if harnessed, if controlled. And that job, to harness that fear, that nationalism, went to the following men. Stalin's representative in Leningrad, Zhidanov, 
who had gone to the Black Sea for his six-week vacation. He was back in the city by June 27th. Peter Pokov, the chairman of the city Soviet, and Lieutenant General Popov, commander of the Leningrad garrison. As for the entities whose job it would be to carry out the dictates of these men, these were the executive committees of the regional, city, and 15-city district Soviets. Yet this entire structure took its orders, of course, from Moscow. When the working hours were increased in the capital at the outbreak of the war, Leningrad followed suit. But as with so much of Soviet life in Russia, responsibilities overlapped through the various committees. Zhdanov and Voroshilov were on the military council of the Leningrad front, but Zhdanov, not the healthiest of men, quickly found himself overwhelmed. So he formed a second committee to take some of his workload. But Stalin found out about this within days and ordered Zhdanov to head that committee as well, which led the belabored man to head both committees, which had the same responsibilities, and he was not allowed to abolish either one. And Stalin would know if the man delegated the tiniest decision to anyone else. If this was not a catch-22, then it was something very like. The first move of this committee, or committees, was to arrest anyone who complained, spread gossip, even if it was true, or acted as if victory was not just around the corner. To have your doorbell rung in one long, continuous ring meant that the police were at your door, and you were either going to be arrested, drafted, sent to Siberia, or shot. The first people to hear the long ring on their doorbells were the ethnic Germans. Some of these families had been near the city since Catherine the Great's time, or at least they came when there were still czars. That no one could point them out from any other citizen of Leningrad without knowing their last name, a telltale sign, was besides the point. Some 23,000 of these people were sent to the Far East in the summer of 1941. Another 35,000 would be dragged out of their homes the following March, sent across the frozen Lake Ladoga, and then ever eastward. Also sent away, or made to disappear, were the socially alien or criminal element. As can be imagined, the status of these two groups was in the eye of the beholder. Still, by late 1942, some 71,000 of these groups had left the city, one way or the other. The bulk of these were the old enemies of communism, the bourgeoisie, the peasants, the ethnic minorities, the churchgoers, and the relatives of the enemies of the state. As covered last time, the people of Leningrad volunteered to help fight the Germans when they were informed of the invasion. But soon after, on June 27th, that desire to defend became mandatory. Issued on that day, Leningrad was the first Soviet city to issue an order for all able-bodied men between 16 and 50, and women, again able-bodied, between 16 and 45, to be ready for civil defense work. The majority were sent south 
to the countryside to dig anti-tank ditches. Others had to dig air raid shelters within the city or camouflage public buildings or man firefighting, bomb disposal, or first aid teams. Those with any skill replaced factory workers who were now soldiers. When Stalin first spoke after Barbarossa was underway on July 3rd, this message of defiance, of leaving nothing behind for the Germans, of not tolerating cowardice, of eventual victory, stiffened the resolve of the people of Leningrad. Yes, Stalin was a hard man, but it was a hard man that was needed now to get them through this. There were dark times ahead, but the light was out there. They just had to endure until it returned. But the hard man in Moscow was also paranoid. Long before this, he had developed a system, mostly to protect himself, where the people knew little of what was going on throughout the country. And with a war on now, the idea developed into the people of each area not knowing what was going on in other places, as they were expected to focus only on their particular battle or coming battles. So, three days into the German invasion, the Soviet Information Bureau, a.k.a. Sovinform, was set up. Only it was allowed to issue official communiques. Reporting on events twice a day, these bursts of information were vague, purposefully so. And as we know, the news was all bad for Soviet Russia in the opening phase of the war. So the reports focused on individual acts of courage or heroism. Ivan killed this many Germans with his bare hands, or Ivan killed this many before he himself was killed. As can be imagined, most of these reports were imagination. And not simply because of communication delays, reports were always a few days behind events. It was reported a town was attacked when it had already fallen. Then the reports spoke of the next town, further east, that was now under attack. The first town was simply dropped, leaving the people to guess at its fate. The one thing that did not change was the Russian sense of humor. It didn't have to become harsh. It already was. During the first weeks of Barbarossa, one of the better-known jokes in Western Russia went like this. A Soviet officer is found sitting in an abandoned German lorry. He is encouraged to get the hell out of there, or he will be fired upon. Why, he says, the Germans will think it's one of theirs, and our soldiers will run away. 